To listen to Memory Card episodes early and ad-free, consider supporting the show via Patreon at patreon.com memcard. Hey there, video game fans. I'm Ben Bertoli, and this is Memory Card. Push is out on one of his many adventures, uh, probably deep in the jungle. I'm not really sure where. Haven't heard from him in a while. But today we have a special guest expert, senior writer and author and all-around cool guy, Daniel Dockery. Daniel, how you doing? Uh, I'm doing great, Ben. Thanks for having me on the memory card. Yeah, of course. You know, I've been thinking about having you as a guest for, uh, you know, a while now, and it kind of worked out perfectly because you have a brand new book that actually has just come out. Yeah, I, uh, no, it's, um, I, yeah, I, (laughs) when you said this is being, this is being recorded, uh, months earlier. Yeah, I know. And so when you said just come out, I was like, oh, (laughs) oh, um, I'll tell you right now, if you ever need to rewind, you know what I mean? We have an editor. He can cut it. So it's going to sound like you're totally fine. No, this is a, it adds, it adds character, I guess. No, I, no, you shrimp me up for a second. No, I'm really, I'm really excited about it. It's, uh, it's been a lot of, uh, hard work, but it's a dream come true to finally have this, you know, on shelves and stuff. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, so give me the elevator pitch. What is this book all about? The elevator pitch, I guess, is this is the story of how Pokemon happened to the world and for a few years known historically as the Pokemania years, um, the Pokemania era, how, you know, the world kind of changed around it uh, because Pokemon, you know, as a concept since 1996, since its inception, hasn't really, hasn't really changed all that much. Its ethos Mm -hmm. have remained pretty locked down. But the world around it has evolved or Pokemon has in some cases forced it to evolve. And that was kind of the genesis of the book was how exciting it would be to look into that. So what inspired you to write this book? Are you I assume you're a huge Pokemon fan in your own right? Yeah, Pokemon is Pokemon's neat. Um <laughs> I no, I, I I remember I was in a I was in I lived in Brooklyn. Uh and I was at a laundromat and I was playing Pokemon Sun and Moon, and those were like the twentieth anniversary games. Mm-hmm. And I started thinking of how much I liked, like, the monster collecting genre. I thought it was really cool. Um, and so I was like, I should write a book about monster collecting games. And so I started writing it, and I realized that I was basically writing, like, a Wikipedia, a series of Wikipedia entries with slight analysis. Mm-hmm. It wasn't really working. So I was like, okay, what? Did, Pokemon's obviously the biggest one. I will write a book about Pokemon's history from its beginning until now. And I started doing that and I wrote when you're pitching nonfiction to an, a publisher or an editor or trying to get signed with an agent, mm-hmm. uh, you in if when you do fiction, you have to write the whole manuscript. But when you're doing nonfiction, you write what's known as proposal. And a proposal is basically a lot of sample cha- or view sample chapters and then, you know, an outline and a lot of introductions about yourself, comparable titles, uh, how you're going to be able to sell this, mm-hmm. you know, why you're the person to write. You're basically, you you write the thing that sells the book, and then you sell yourself as the expert on it. And I started sending it around to agents and editors, and um, they they didn't really they didn't really buy it. Uh, one was really like their comments really stuck with me as in, you know, you obviously have a lot of passion about this. This has some interesting stuff in it, but publishing is slow and there's a, you know, there'll be a new Pokemon game by the time I finish the sentence. So like (laughs) by the time this book comes out, 
it's going to be out of date by at least like a year. Mm. And so I was like, okay, solid point. So I went back, I decided, okay, what's, what is a, what is an A to B kind of narrative that I can tell with this? What is a story that can be latched onto that even if time goes by and we're in Pokemon generation 13, by the time this comes out, you know, it stays true to, you know, what it is and what Pokemon's about. Mm-hmm. And so I decided to center on the, Gotta catch them all years, you know, when Gotta Catch Them All was instated and then kind of dropped as Pokemon's uh, ethos, even though Gotta Catch Them All has never really gone away. It remains the rallying cry for a lot of, for the reason why a lot of people still play Pokemon, mm-hmm. but it's not really slapped all over the place anymore. Right. And so I decided to, I decided to focus on those few years, which, you know, coincided with the most dramatic culturally uh, years of Pokemon's existence, Pokemania. And it's the one I lived through as a child. And uh, I, you know, I sent that to Cassie, who's my wonderful agent now. And she was like, that's a story that I think we can work with and you know is off the races very cool very cool yeah i mean i grew up uh you know with pokemon i, I think the, the first games came out when i was in third or fourth grade mm-hmm. so i was kind of at that perfect you know age i had a game boy and i was reading all the stuff in nintendo power they were putting out you know the previews yeah they put out the the six mini issues right yeah which are super cool <laughs> and then you try to buy them and they're uh they're yeah they're not easy to find but go ahead sorry. oh i have a few i have a few that are in my uh oh that's awesome nintendo power collection yeah it's funny because i was actually um, reading through you know parts of your book and they were mentioning different toys and different things and I'm like oh yeah I had that or I, I literally still have that um, there was a point where you mentioned like uh, these little beanie babies that came out at KFC yeah and I was like we had all of those those are somewhere in my parents like attic or something <laughs> I need to go find them yeah they're probably worth a pretty penny or something but my no my well there are they're pretty uh and surprisingly enough out of all of like the Pokemon merchandise in that time period, the KFC Beanie Babies aren't super expensive. Mm-hmm. My <laughs> my theory is that they're all kind of covered in like KFC grease right now, <laughs> deep fried. I don't know what happened. I had I had all four of them as well, and including one based off my favorite Pokemon line, Dratini. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what happened to that one. I don't know what happened to Vulpix, but Zubat and Seal I still had. And those things have seen better days. <laughs> like my son plays with them. Like I brought them. Uh, my parents found them when they were moving some boxes around. They're like, do you want these? And I was like, yeah. And then I held them and I'm like, oh, Seal, what happened, brother? <laughs> so, yeah, it's a it, yeah, it's a cool little artifact, even if, you know, I probably should have put them in like a bag or something. Yeah, I actually have all the Burger King uh, Pokemon with little gold cards inside. Yeah. I have all of those except for the Charizard one, which I had on my desk as a teacher. And I was out for a day. And while my sub was there, uh, a kid stole it. I never, never got it back. Oh, some, my goodness. Kid. I mean, I don't think it's actually worth a ton of money. It's probably not. Yeah, a kid probably was like, oh, this looks neat. Right. I mean, it looks <laughs> like gold. Like, I'll steal this gold yeah. bar off of Mr. Bertoli's desk. Like, gosh, what a... What a what a maneuver! What a team rocket! Oh right, the yeah. Making. <laughs> they were like, <laughs> "Hope this is Pikachu." Prepare for trouble. <laughs> well, the sub is here. All right. Well, I mean, obviously, your book covers. I mean, a multitude of different aspects of the mm-hmm. uh, "Gotta Catch 'Em All" years. There's the video games, there's the trading cards, there's the anime, and the, all the merchandise. But I thought that we could just focus in on one specific uh, thing because otherwise you know first of all we don't want to give away too much yeah 
to the readers who need to go out and buy this book. And, um, you know, secondly, we, we can't have the podcast episode go on for, you know, 14, 15 <laughs> hours. So, all right, let's, uh, let's get the, the theme music rolling and we will get into this. I don't know if you know this, uh, Daniel, but the very first episode of Memory Card was actually about Pokemon. It was about uh, Mew, and uh, you cover this in the book. It's kind of how they snuck Mew in at that last second. Yeah. And also the popularity that it caused when they did the giveaway in Japan. Yeah. You got some great insight on that. Uh, We did an episode about like the Lavender Town myth that it like Mm -hmm. drove kids to, you know, like hurt themselves and get sick. Yeah. We covered the Pokemon Center in New York. But I thought it would be fun if we kind of dove into the anime, the Pokemon anime, you know, like that initial season. So where do we start with that? When was that put into production, I guess? Like, how far into the development of the Pokemon games? So, I don't know exactly when the anime was put into production. The first episode uh, was on April 1st, 1997. Okay. Uh, so, I imagine it was late 1996. Hmm. Um, and at that point, you know, Pokemon had gone from this kind of, like, quiet hit like when it came out its release wasn't a disaster right but it certainly wasn't lighting the world on fire and it really became kind of a word of mouth success after a while of more and more and more people latching on it what normally happens with games releases as you know is you know they have a few really good weeks and then they kind of Mm -hmm. dip a little bit and then uh eventually you know some of them have a long tail some some of them don't but pokemon its tail was in some cases getting higher and higher week after week. <laughs> and this is in Japan, right? The original launch. This is in Japan. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so, uh, you know, the parties that be of, you know, Game Freak, Nintendo, uh, OLM, who would produce the anime, Shogakukan, they're all who was mostly involved in like, po- like license the anime and a lot of Pokemon products. They made the decision like, we're going to make an anime. We are, you know, <laughs> we have to find like somebody to be head director and a head writer, but this thing's happening. And so what the book goes into mostly is this guy uh, named Takeshi Shudo, who became the head writer for the anime and kind of, you know, we return to him every once in a while, like throughout the book. Uh, But he, you know, he was a a veteran of the anime writing trenches at that point. And uh, he, you know, the director was his friend and he, you know, he was asked to see if he could oversee it. And then they started uh, creating it. And it was, you know, the beginnings of it, as Shudo writes in his blog, um, he didn't, he latched onto some parts of it, didn't really latch onto other parts of it. Like for a little while, he, you know, as you read the book, he thought about he wanted to make it a musical. He wanted a lot of musical numbers mm. in it. <laughs> uh, then eventually they came back and were like, ha, huh, that was a funny joke that you did Shudo. And he was like, ah, yeah. <laughs> he just crumples up that like Psyduck <laughs> melody, you know, big number. It's a, and it's a, obviously I would have loved a, the alternate universe where the Pokemon anime becomes a musical, but I, you know, it probably is if the, for something that wants, you know, in the longevity that they wanted it to have uh, to go at least a year and a half, I think, you know, not going with a musical was probably the safest bet. Right. Well, and it seems like that would be extremely hard for um, them oh, to yeah. try and like dub that into other regions. <laughs> like, holy yeah, crap. Yeah, uh, you know, eventually when Pokemon, when the 
arms of this franchise started, you know, branching out, Pokemon became more and more about like, eventually this thing is going to, this thing is going to leave Japan. And, you know, they, as the, as I dive into with the book, you know, it really became kind of like an international cultural force. And I don't know exactly when they realized that, but it was definitely a concern that kept growing as time went on. And as I put in the book, the anime was the point that I regard where Pokemon becomes Pokemon the franchise rather than Pokemon the thing that became lucky enough to be successful in other places. Yeah, that kind of makes sense because uh, then it, at that point, it's like firing on all cylinders, right? Yeah, no, they're, at that point, it's very... Um, it Pokemon, it's that underdog's going places. <laughs> and th- th- it was also, you know, Shudu talks about in his in his writing, he talks about the fact that like they were very concerned about, you know, this being like a pillar of the Pokemon brand hmm. of, you know, like you're going to have the games and you're going to have the cards and you're going to have the manga and you're going to have the merchandise, but every piece of it has to be as strong as, or they're going to tend to make it as strong as, or correlate with another piece. And it's the beginning of this kind of impenetrable branding that we now see with the Pokemon company, where every piece of Pokemon kind of serves as a commercial for another piece of Pokemon. Hmm. And in a way that few franchises ever really managed to attain, like it's the, it's the, it is the romantic ideal of a fictional setting where everything, if you look at it, everything kind of matches up in to obviously there are outliers like the first Pokemon manga, which is, which never made its way out of, or certainly never made its way to America, which is full of, you know, crude scatological humor, (laughs) which if you can, if you can find pieces of it to read, it's, you know, parts of it are pretty juvenile. Some parts of it are funny, but there, you know, there's a reason why, uh, why it appears at least that that kind of things, you know, been kept away from their broader efforts. But yeah, a, a lot of, you know, everything in Pokemon kind of connects with everything else. They don't take too many wild swings, even as the franchise kind of evolves, whether it be, you know, new, a new look for the anime or a more open world style in the later games. It's all kind of cohesive. Yeah. And so this launches in Japan and you said this was uh, like in the second half of 1997, right? When the anime comes out. This is, yeah, this is, I think it's, I remember, so it's like early spring 1997. The original Pokemon games came out in uh, early 96. It came out in February 96. Okay, so this is like a year-ish later. Yeah. At that point, you know, everyone's like, you know, frothing at the mouth for these games. And now there's an anime. So I assume that it like kind of took off immediately, right? The anime was pretty successful and... It's it's one of those things where, you know, when you inevitably get to the the Porygon incident mm-hmm. or the Porygon episode incident, the Porygon incident kind of freaks some people out. Like the anime went on a four month hiatus. Right. Um, there was a big like investigation into like. Well, let's talk about it. Let's. Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't want to give away too much. But what happened? What is this Porygon episode? I mean, I know, but let's. <laughs> so the Porygon episode basically was because of a flashing light effect. And if you watch uh, like early Pokemon episodes aired on the same time, it's it's not necessarily too dissimilar. Right, because Pikachu's always attacking with electric attacks, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, the anime is very explosive. It's very bombastic, a lot of action. But in this particular episode, the sequence of flashing lights, you know, if you're, I guess, prone to like uh, seizures and other seizure-like symptoms, I, I'm not a, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not a anatomical expert, but it's certainly not good. 
Right. The, uh, it sends kids to the hospital or, you know, if not to the hospital, then they report, you know, having medical problems after watching it. Mm-hmm. But the interesting thing is, even while this had uh, kind of a, a, oh, no, what has Pokemon done? What is What have these Pokemon monsters done feeling in Japan? In America, it's the first time that a lot of people are hearing about it. So this incident is so big that they're like, yeah, and it happened due to this series. And they're like, oh, Pokemon. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's well, the America, it's it's pretty funny. I detail in the book that there's two articles and they come out within eight days of each other in the New York Times. Mm-hmm. And the first one is about the surprising continual popularity of the Game Boy, which at that point had outlived the amount of time that people thought it would, you know, because video game consoles tend to have like a, a concrete, we're putting all of our efforts into this, especially Nintendo console, about six years. Mm-hmm. And after that, if they haven't moved on to the next thing, that's when they start trying to put it out of pasture. But, you know, the Game Boy, I think, comes out in 1989. And, you know, here it is, late 1997. And it's getting more popularity than it's ever had, partially in thanks to Pokemon. And so this New York Times author is like, you know, this Game Boy, I've had more fun with this than I have with all of my high-tech, confusing computers. (laughs) And he lists Pokemon as a part of it as like a sentence. And in the first New York Times article about the about the uh, unfortunate seizure incident, Pokemon isn't mentioned until the 10th paragraph where they're like, and I guess it's something called pocket monsters. <laughs> uh, I maybe, but that's the first, that's kind of a double whammy of how Pokemon would eventually be brought over to America is, is uh, two things. One, uh, it's really popular and it's, you know, they're spending a lot of money on to promote it. And two, uh, it gives your kids seizures, I guess. <laughs> um, so uh, culturally, uh, from a brand perspective, um, that's not really what you want. Mm-hmm. But culturally, it's certainly made for, you know, an instantaneous impact when it did eventually come out in September of 98. As a kid, I remember hearing about that, uh, you know, like later, like much later. Because there are some gaps in the Pokemon, uh, the first series, like you're like, oh, wait, how did Ash get all these Tauros? Or, you know, there's there's those spots. Yeah. But I remember someone telling me that, you know, it was played in Japan. It gave the kids uh, seizures. And then they played it on the news that night and a bunch of adults got seizures. I don't think that's true. Was Did you find anything like that in your uh, research? So, again, it's one of the I can't remember exactly. I think they did end up playing it twice mm. that day before they never played it again. Um, but I'd have to go back and look. I only wrote about the first incident because it was kind of like, OK, um, but I doubt they would take they'd be like, hey, this gave a bunch of people seizures. Let's put it on the news and show it again. You know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah, it's, surely, um, surely that was like just a schoolyard <laughs> rumor that someone's like, oh, man, again, I'd have to I'd have to look <laughs> back into it. But um, I think I think I think if not, if not the episode, then clips of it were shown as kind of a like, wait, uh, what? Yeah. But maybe not the parts that actually gave people seizures. I would, I, I would hope again, they were I, smart enough to know. I'd have to look it up again. It's been my brain is kind of uh, overloaded with Pokemon, Digimon, Yu-Gi-Oh, and other monster collecting factoids from the time period. That's understandable. But yeah, it's uh, no, it's it's it made it. it it's also become like the. Uh, like the subject of like myth itself, mm-hmm. like the incident where um, I remember I was uh, I wrote about a, like a tweet about it. And somebody was like, actually, uh, the seizure incident was orchestrated by Nintendo themselves to give Pokemon <laughs> notoriety. And I was like, 
totally. were they now? That <laughs> so it was just it was one of those things where like, sure, man, okay, thanks for your interest in the book. But yeah, it's uh, you know, that happens and eventually Pokemon comes back on the air. There's a really funny quote in that New York Times article where like the seven year old girl is like it, it, it was awful, but I hope they don't cancel the show. <laughs> like, glass half full. <laughs> wow. So it has this notorious reputation, kind of. Um, I mean, I would assume most people, you know, didn't read that article or didn't make the connection when Pokemon, um, you know, first appeared in North America. Yeah, it was it was mostly like a lot of like the like the business and like trade magazines that were talking mm-hmm. about like, hey, Nintendo of America is spending a lot of money to promote this. By the way, you remember the seizure thing? That was this. <laughs> what? What seizure thing? We're going to put things on a pause for a moment to hear a word from our sponsors. Memory card. That's us. That's right. We're our own sponsor. And if you'd like to support us, you can leave a four or five star review on the podcasting platform of your choice or follow us on Twitter at MemCardShow. But Ben, what about our fantastic patrons? Of course, of course. In fact, our wonderful patrons over at Patreon are really what make this show possible. And if you are feeling extra supportive, you can head over to patreon.com slash memcard. Every single one of our patrons gets access to early and ad-free episodes, Higher tiers include bonus episodes, shout-outs, stickers, and more. We certainly hope you'll check it out and consider becoming one of our lovely patrons. Once again, that's patreon.com slash M-E-M-C-A-R-D. What's our sticker for this season, Push? Well, since it's our A season, we actually have this wonderful little robot, Octorok. And it was actually illustrated by my friend, uh, Midoribin. You can follow her on Twitter at Midoribin underscore art. Very cool. Eight legs for eight seasons. I like it. I like it. Well, thanks for taking the time to hear us out. Let's go ahead and get back to the show. So, did the the anime in North America it it predates the games, right? Uh, yeah, it came out. I think about two and a half weeks or two weeks before the video games, as kind of a very well orchestrated teaser taster hmm. for it. Um, it was definitely an idea to get kids kind of hooked on it. It worked pretty quickly. You know, they'd, they'd spent a lot of ads on it, both, you know, from Nintendo of America and then the company Four Kids, which licensed the anime and a bunch of Pokemon merchandise and stuff uh, as they're kind of like go between with all the other businesses that, you know, wanted to get up on this Pikachu thing mm-hmm. uh, with the, them, uh, them using their own ad dollars and also bartering with Nintendo of America's ad dollars. Because, uh, you know, as you'll see in the book, Four Kids has a level of infamy yeah. when it comes to anime fans. There's a, it's a, it is a well scrutinized company. And, you know, I think especially with the way that like anime localization has evolved, you know, to, maintain a little to maintain a more consistent accuracy i guess uh to the source material mm-hmm. you know a lot of that has been warned but it's in the in the culture of anime fandom it's definitely something that has been a endless debate and beca- mostly because of its like relationship to pokemon that it's the the most highest grossing media franchise in the world that it becomes you know the First thing a lot of people point to when they talk about the ins and outs and ups and downs of anime localization. Right. So 4Kids is the company that Nintendo worked with to get Pokemon, uh, you know, translated and uh, like Americanized. The anime. Right. Yeah. Just the anime. Yeah. Yeah. 4Kids, they had previous history working with Nintendo before and like 4Kids, I think, you know, one of the things that I try to impress on the book is that 4Kids is not a localization company. Hmm. 
they are a licensing company. Localization, as uh, as my friend Mike Tool uh, once put it, is basically it's it was mostly kind of a means to an end, and it doesn't mean that they you know didn't produce some good stuff and some very very questionable stuff. But basically, what they were trying to do is get Pokemon, not just the anime, but Pokemon in front of as many eyes as possible and kind of doing whatever they could to ensure that when Pokemon had an impact, its impact was as broad as it could be. For kids, whole process was basically taking the taking the term localization very, very, very literally, <laughs> because there was a lot, there was a lot of you know depending on who you talk to about that. I talked to a lot of people uh, as you read it. There's a quite a few interviews spurs throughout it. There was a lot of different opinions about whether Pokemon would work in America. I think some of it had to do with the fact that they were scared about being it being in a major RPG series in a country that typically didn't latch on to RPG series in a huge major way. Like obviously mm-hmm. they'd made like, like Chrono Trigger had become like a cult at this point. And there had been right. RPG successes, but when, when marketers thought of the American child, they thought of, you know, platformers and fighting games and racing yeah. games, not slow back and forth battles with the monster pals you made friends with. Mm-hmm. And it didn't help that Earthbound had come out not too you know, long ago and really bombed. Yeah, Earthbound had come out a little bit before, and and Earthbound is a great game, but it's uh, it hadn't it hadn't instilled a lot of faith in the idea of this kind of gentle fantasy RPG mm. where you control a little kid around. But uh, four kids, um, you know, they took the term localization very uh, took it very seriously, and I I talked to um, Norman Grossfeld, who was very high up with that company. And uh, basically his pitch was that no matter where Pokemon was, he wanted it to feel local. And, uh, you know, if a, if a kid in Kansas was watching it, he wanted to make it feel like a kid in Kansas was in that the Pokemon world was in Kansas. If a kid in Germany was watching it, he wanted to feel like Pokemon could have taken place in Germany. If a kid in uh, anywhere else in the world was watching it, he wanted it to feel like it could like happen in their neighborhood, which you know, required some doing and that what they did to the, what they ended up editing with the Pokemon anime is very, uh, very notorious. It was a lot of the scrubbing, the scrubbing of uh, Japanese characters was a huge part of it. Right. You know, they added a lot. They took out a lot of original music. They added a lot of music uh, because American cartoons, I don't know if you've ever, it, I was about to say, I don't know if you've ever watched American cartoons. You know, American <laughs> cartoons, Ben, they're, they've been around. Yeah, a, a couple, a few. But they're they're very much based on dramatic beats are typically based around music. Mm-hmm. And if you like, if you go back and watch like the especially the first few episodes of the Pokemon anime, the music choices are not quite that. It's very much like it's mood setting in a different ray, way rather than like we should be excited right now. Now, do you mean the Japanese version or the American version? The Japanese version. Oh, okay. Japanese version, which has some really like beautiful pieces, but four kids, uh, their music selection for it is very much more like go, 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 go. And uh, yeah. And, you know, uh, adding whole new bits of dialogue to it, you know, taking away uh, some of the stuff that not just that they felt wouldn't work, but would not have worked by broadcast standards by any uh, definition of the word. Right. Because people, they didn't have one thing they were working on was that, you know, 
it would be hard. There was that uh, episode about the Safaris and Rotini and the, the the well-known meme of the old man with a gun. Right. Points a gun right at Ash's head. Yeah. And that episode obviously, obviously never aired. And, you know, mm-hmm. for for reasons that are probably pretty evident to anybody that with any familiarity of what like American censors like and don't like. But they also had a distrust of anime. And it, this is, you know, when Pokemon's come over, this is pre-Toonami. This is pre-kind of anime's bigger saturation into American pop culture as a whole. Right. The mainstream. Yeah. And, you know, anime had been around before. People that try to claim that anime in America began with, like, Pokemon or Toonami are missing out on a on a wide history of decades of anime showing up sometimes in kind of popular forms, like mm-hmm. on big networks and, and, but a lot of times on kind of like harder to find early morning or late night segments. Yeah. Like VHSs that you find at the flea market. <laughs> yeah. And it was around, but it had never really been like franchisable mm. to the extent that Pokemon was, I guess is a good way to put it. Mm-hmm. But American uh, broadcasters networks had a kind of a distrust against it. And whether that was coming from, you know, anime's reputation as kind of like a weirder, more violent niche content, or, you know, people forget that we're like coming off like the eighties when entire movies, like if you have ever watched the, the movie gung ho. No, I don't think so. Okay. Gung ho is an entire movie about, an American business coming to terms with Japanese auto manufacturers. The eighties were very much like a, Oh my God, if we don't do something, Japan's going to beat us in, you know, the, uh, all these, they're going to beat us in all these different businesses. And, uh, I, I can't help but think that that like for, you know, that that carried over the fact that people have this idea of this, people have this idea of this cheap, underwhelming Japanese foreign product coming over and taking over American screens. Mm. And that was, I I can't help but think that that played a lot of, you know, in the reason why, you know, there was a lot of great anime being produced in the nineties, which could have been ripe for American televisions, but people were like, no, we're just not, people don't buy that over here. But yeah, that was my long-winded approach to uh, approach to saying that four kids changed some things. <laughs> what, what would you say? I mean, there's the episode with the gun that they took out. Mm-hmm. Um, I know they got rid of, what is it, like a tenta, tentacruel, tentacruel episode because uh, James from uh, Team Rocket is, is in some... Um, interesting clothing, uh, dressed up as a woman. Well, there's a, there is the there's the tentacle and the tentacruel episode. I don't know the exact episode that they mm-hmm. that they took out, but it's one. It's kind of a pair of episodes. Oh, okay. And they left in the tentacle, and there is a tentacle and uh, tentacruel episode. Oh, okay. So they just added it heavily. Heavily. Well, yeah. I mean, it plays kind of like a kaiju flick, and it's kind of mm-hmm. fun. Yeah, I think you see that in the opening uh, theme. You see like giant, the giant one hitting the building. Yeah, and it's like, oh my gosh. Yeah. What would you say is their most infamous change? Like the most well-known one. The mo- oh my gosh, the donuts thing. Oh. <laughs> so, the donuts thing has become kind of like public enemy, <laughs> patient zero, mm-hmm. exhibit A of like, look at what localization has done to anime. <laughs> and it's been 25 years ago or almost 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. Move on. But basically, uh, and it's not the first time it's in the, in, in the, it's in the primate goes bananas episode. Okay. So this is early on. Yeah, it's fairly early on. It's not the first time that they did it. The first time that a uh, that an onigiri rice ball is referred to as a jelly donut actually happens in the Squirtle Squad episode. Oh. When the Squirtles steal Team Rocket's lunch. 
And uh, either Jesse or James says, "My oh, my jelly donuts. And then you see them eating a <laughs> rice ball. Which is funny, too, because, like, who has donuts for lunch? You know? <laughs> like, and, well, yeah. They're, <laughs> that'd be, I want what Team Rocket's having. You're right. I think what makes it stand out is that it's not a passing reference. Passing reference. Passing reference is that Brock says it, like, five times in the span of, like, a minute. Like, <laughs> I love jelly donuts. Nothing better than jelly. I love a donut. Jelly are my favorite. Nothing beats a good jelly donut. <laughs> All while holding this thing like at the camera, like, see, a jelly donut. And then Ash like later is like, I don't want jelly donuts. And Brock's like, don't you want jelly donuts? <laughs> These donuts are great. Jelly filled are my favorite. Nothing beats a jelly filled donut. And Eric Stewart, who voices Brock at like a panel later, uh, talked about their kind of like mindset behind it of like they figured that Americans would know what donuts were more than sushi. And it's like a kid. I grew up in like a rural part of North Carolina and like I I get it but it's just kind of it's cartoonishly funny and like the leap of because it, it doesn't look like a jelly donut it doesn't right you know it doesn't, it doesn't taste like a jelly donut but it it's just it's out there and it's uh yeah that is that's probably become the most famous thing uh <laughs> whether as both a source of like criticism or as a or as a meme mm-hmm. of their localization as people have latched people that don't know anything else about like the pokemon localization process have latched onto the jelly donut as kind of like the like representing everything <laughs> that was done to the pokemon anime or the pokemon franchise when it's brought over to america yeah well it's funny too because you know there's there's plenty of japanese foods that if you said them to a kid they'd be like i have no idea what that is but i feel like rice ball is pretty self-explanatory if you're like it's a rice ball like oh it's a ball made of rice like yeah yeah it's <laughs> I don't you got know. it <laughs> it's, yeah i i you know i i don't know exactly like I don't know exactly if they like considered it. Like they couldn't be like, ah, Ash, don't you love pizza? <laughs> Rice ball. Um, or, but uh, yeah, they it just jelly donut. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and also it's like, you know, it's a show made to appeal to kids. And I think like, you know, there's a possibly like, a kid wouldn't think a rice ball is very tasty, but if you told a kid, like, mm. look, Brock, Ash, and Misty are having jelly donuts, the kids would be like, wow. I love jelly donuts. They're the best <laughs> thing in the world. And that's what they look like in the Pokemon world, obviously. That's what I they think... look like, apparently, in the Pokemon world, which takes place in my world. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's some weird things in the Pokemon world. There's monsters, there's electric rats, and there's donuts that look like, you know. That's, that's what the jelly donuts look like. Yeah. That's just it. Uh, Okay, so I was reading your book quite a bit about, you know, those people who were tasked with getting the anime like ready for North America. Um, And Mm -hmm. it sounded like um, uh, quite a few of them thought that it was just going to be like a flop. Yeah. Is that that kind of the general consensus that you got? As I said, there was like a big difference. Like some people were like, this is going to last like two weeks and we're going to be, you know, (laughs) we're going to be out of it because four kids wasn't dealing with a lot of money at that time. Hmm. Hence having to like barter sometimes with Nintendo of America advertising dollars uh, to get Pokemon on, you know, on syndication. And then there were some people that thought, uh, oh, this is this is our ticket. This is going to be good. Um, and so it was pretty, it was pretty wide. And eventually a lot of people that I talked to that didn't think, uh, that Pokemon was going to last or Pokemon was going to last too long in retrospect were like, I see it now. I get it. (laughs) But yeah, it was, uh, it, I mentioned, uh, I mentioned that a lot in the book of, you know, there's, there's a pretty wide disparity. Like I did, no one really thought like, eh, it'll do something. It was either going to be like, this could be very, very big, or this is going to be a 
an embarrassing cash loss and humiliation. <laughs> oh, no. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, it. I guess in the grand scheme of things, it, did, it worked out it for the best. Okay. Yeah. It did okay. It Pokemon like has fine. done okay. <laughs> and it's funny because in your book, you, you mentioned something about how Pokemon was eventually pulled to Kids WB. And in my mind, I was like, wait, wasn't it always on Kids WB? It was not. So when it initially came, was it, I mean... Was it just whoever wanted it? It was on syndication. Okay. You had to basically, one thing that 4Kids was very was very plentiful that Nintendo America didn't really have is it had a lot of relationships to these networks, not just, you know, big, huge networks like NBC, CBS, ABC, but like on like a, like a station level. And it did very, very well in syndication, regardless of like it airing at like 630 <laughs> uh, in the morning, it's, you know? Mm-hmm. And so eventually uh, they were able to kids WB would won the bid for it and they got it um, and it aired with the first episode, I think was like the problem with Paris, I think is what it's called, which is like no one's no one's favorite Pokemon is Paris. If it is, I'm sorry, but I don't believe you. <laughs> but um, it did did gangbusters ratings hmm. and it was you know it, and then from then on kids wb kind of became the home for pokemon for as long as you know four kids uh was with it yeah and that's what i remember and i also uh, saw that you mentioned that the first episode that aired you know at all wasn't even the very first episode of the actual anime right no they like jumped to the ssn episode it was the uh it was the ssn episode where it you know, begins to sink at the end of it. Ah. And it's, yeah, it's, I, my, I, I asked about it and no one can really remember why it was the first episode chosen to be as like, like the specialties. Mm -hmm. I think it's because the last year Titanic had become like the most profitable or not the most profitable, like the highest grossing movie of all time. Mm. And so even if people weren't into Pokemon, they could recognize like the iconography of big ship sinks (laughs) and people aboard it terrified. So you just, you were, you know, all those rabid uh, Titanic heads. Yeah. I mean, Leonardo DiCaprio did all the Pokemon voices in that episode. I don't think people know that. He did. No, a lot of people <laughs> don't know that is that that was him. That was him and Kate Winslet voicing Pikachu. People don't know it. Little, little known fact. We we made that up. That's not in the book. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, there is a, uh, there is a thing with Leonardo DiCaprio later that I don't want to spoil, mm-hmm. but I'm, uh. Uh, yeah, it, that was the first episode. I think it's because like the Titanic reference, it would have been easy to understand. Yeah. Because um, at that point, Titanic had made uh, all the money in the world and was also like the, you know, the reference point for comedy sketches and whatever. Mm-hmm. And it was in the public consciousness. So why not put that episode first to kind of tease the appetite before you get into 20 minutes of Pikachu just hating Ash Ketchum's existence? <laughs> All right. Well, we don't have a ton of time left, but there were uh, a few very important questions I need to ask you. First one is, uh, what's favorite Pokemon of the original 151? Favorite one of them and of all time is Dragonite. Dragonite was so cool to see as this kind of smooth, mystical, gentle, dorky dragon, especially because like Western dragons are very much like smog from the Hobbit-esque. They're like fire-breathing pillagers. And Dragonite is very gentle. Mm-hmm. It's very, uh, it's, you know, I think there was like a Pokedex entry about it being like telepathic with like humans or whatever. I think I I could be, this could be another one of those that's just like in the, the monster kid slosh pit in the back of my head. But um, mm-hmm. Dra- yeah, Dragonite was so cool and so different looking and still like this super powerful final boss 
Pokemon. <laughs> uh, and I just, it was so cool. I remember in, I think it's Pokemon, the first movie, like one shows up, he's like delivering mail, I think. Little messenger bag. Yeah, it's yeah. so cute. Oh, and like, they, they had the little, they had the little special card. Right. Uh, where it's, yeah, it's so cool. As a Dragonite fan, I was like in my seat, like, oh, yeah. And then he's going to face Mewtwo and it's going to be <laughs> Dragonite the movie. That didn't happen. Ice beam, ice beam, ice beam. Yeah. <laughs> that didn't happen. But it was a, uh, it was, you know, it was, it was a fun, it was a good time to be a Dragonite fan. <laughs> uh, is there a Pokemon episode of that original season that really sticks out to you as being like the most memorable or the most watched for you? So I think, in, okay, I have a ready answer for this. I think in terms terms of everything that Pokemon did well and everything that four kids did that was both that was memorable mm-hmm. is Charmander the stray Pokemon. I think it like I cried in that episode as a kid and um oh my it's heartbreak. You know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, he's on the yeah, little rock and then he's waiting on the uh and his little flame is going lower. He's little, just holding the leaf over his little flame and then Ash saves him, but he wants Aww. to go back to his old trainer, Damien. Mm-hmm. The Damien who has the uh ho ho me Charmander <laughs> Charmander return because four kids four kids could not resist giving like an accent that sounded like they just kind of made it up. Yeah. <laughs> It's not really Australian. It's I mean I think it's meant to sound Australian, but it's sort of not. But it, yeah, he's just so hateable. And uh, you know they get him, and then Ash wins him over with like not with like his battle prowess, but with kind of like kindness, mm. which is kind of like the perfect exemplification of the Ash Ketchum character of like obviously this has changed like as anime goes on he's become like a champion and like good for you Ash but his first incarnation is kind of just being like this kid who's learning how to be like a good dude right I think that's really cool that he wins Charmander over just by being kind of nice to him I had a VHS that I like ran into the ground um, and it was the one that had the Hitmonchan and Hitmonlee. The punchy Pokemon? Yeah, punchy Pokemon. Um, so that one was a big one for me. And then the uh, Lieutenant Surge fight with Pikachu and Raichu is just like a hey, baby. momentous occasion yeah. in my young life. So, Hey baby, you ready to take another beating? I know I've mentioned this on another episode, but I notoriously taped over my little brother's ultrasound with an episode of Pokemon <laughs> on accident. I did not do it on purpose. I thought it was a blank tape. I don't know why I didn't check. He's going to look like he's going to look like a, you know, a, a, a thing in the womb for like just a, like a few more weeks. But Pokemon's forever. Uh, it is forever. So that's right. the- let's look. Well, let's see how he's progressing. And then it's like, you know, a Pikachu doing a thunder attack. Wow. Oh, boy. He's, he's really kicking. He's, he's really kicking. <laughs> Oh, Lord. All right. Well, uh, Daniel, thanks so much for coming on today. Oh, no problem. Where can people find this book or where can't they find it? I feel like it's going to be everywhere, right? It's where's the best place for them to pick it up? Legit everywhere. Um, Obviously, you can like get it on um, Amazon, uh, like, but in like other books, like Barnes Noble and Books a Million. If Books a Million is still a thing by the time this podcast comes out. <laughs> this comes out. Um, but I, what two things I urge you though, if you can get it at like an independent bookstore, please do. Mm-hmm. Independent bookstores deserve all of the care that you can, or that you can offer them. And I know that like, you know, uh, right now times are tough and you might not have the money to spend on like a Pokemon book. So request your local library to get it. And if you get it, like if you send a request to your local library, like send it, find me on Twitter at Dan Doc, D-A-N-D-O-C-K. And I will poorly draw you a Pokemon. Thanks, because libraries deserve (laughs) all the support in the world as well. 
Yeah, that's a great idea. All right. So once again, that book is uh, Monster Kids at the time of recording. It's not yet out, but uh, when this goes live, it should be. So uh, take a look for that. Find Dan on Twitter. Hit up the memory card Twitter or hit up Dan with any cool Pokemon memories that you have um, if you've listened to this episode. Yeah, please do. That's all for now. Thanks for listening. Our intro and outro music was crafted by talented chiptune composer Jamatar. You can find more of his bangin' beats by searching Jamatar, that's J-A-M-A-T-A-R, on Spotify or visiting Jamatar.com. This episode and every episode in Season 8 was edited by audio superstar Mikey Yankovich. If you have any feedback on the podcast or would like to recommend a topic, feel free to reach out to us via Twitter, at MemCardShow. Or you can visit our website, memorycardshow.com. If you'd like to follow Ben and I, we can be found at SuperBenTendo and at PushDustin, respectively. Have you considered supporting Memory Card on Patreon? If not, we hope you will. Currently, we're supported by quite a few awesome people, all of which get access to early, ad-free episodes. These people include Jackson Bertoli, Courtney Cotton, Taylor Bias, Cody Sam, Michael Strickland, Jorge Bajija, Manuel Vitella, Shala, Sandra L, Nick Callis, Jaehoon Jeong, Sean Marafini, Joseph Bayer, and Brock Delabru. All of our Patreon info can be found on the support section of our website or on patreon.com slash memcard. We'll be back really soon with some more gaming history goodness, so be sure to subscribe and leave a review if you've enjoyed the show. We'll see you soon.